program everybody you just stepped inside of psychotic bump school the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul my name is dj rome and i want to welcome you to another exciting edition of psychotic bump school so ladies and gentlemen tonight oh we have another fantastic show coming up this evening we're going to be joined by our recurring guest the good brother mr a sky galloway as we pay tribute to the late great filmmaking pioneer melvin van peoples that's right mr van peoples passed away on september 22nd after a long illustrious life of international fame and world renown uh, he made his transition y'all so we're going to be talking about his life and legacy and contribution to the uh, film and the arts in general melvin van peoples is going to be broken down with us by the legendary journalist and drummer mr a scott galloway it's always a joy to have scott here it's been a while looking forward to catching up with that brother and uh we're gonna be covering a lot of things tonight so you might want to call your friends and family to the radio or the computer because we are about to set it off right now as a matter of fact are y'all checking out what's happening across the world oh my god there's so much happening internationally and nationally that it is almost impossible to keep up uh i'm gonna break down a few things right now as we kick off psychotic bump school for this very very consequential week Wow, the stars are going to have to align something fierce in order to save the Joe Biden presidency. Let me tell you why. The General Assembly has been meeting in New York City, and that's a gathering of about uh, somewhere between 90 and 100 different leaders, uh, representatives across the world, and they get together uh, once a year and they discuss world issues, including economy, global economy, climate change, um, everything you can imagine. And so that's been happening. But what is really going on is as much as we were covering in the news, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, at the top of last week, we had the Haitian refugees that were getting rounded up and uh, being photographed. And, and there was a huge backlash around that. Uh, they have since been banned from riding horses. <laughs> And of course, the, that, that's just a continuation of the immigration fallout. No matter what administration is in office, ladies and gentlemen, there's always an Achilles heel around the, the futility of trying to curb the border crisis. And of course, Republicans are often and always, not often, always accusing Democrats of being soft on uh, immigration. And Democrats often uh, don't push back hard enough on that because if you look at the record, um, well, I'm not even going to speak on that, but it, it's proven that immigration, whether it's legal or not, uh, clearly benefits uh, both parties in that it provides a, a endless stream of cheap labor, labor source. It provides an endless stream of cheap labor, so they're not going to stop it. And uh, but most recently, um, Haitian refugees out of Brazil have been floating into Texas and they were hovering under a large bridge and 
they were getting rounded up and uh, it created a huge international outcry. Um, it was like a throwback into way past Jim Crow uh, to slavery days. So that, that outrage was happening. But, you know, since that time, ladies and gentlemen, people have been focusing on the missing person, uh, Gabby Petito. Uh, her remains were recently found and now there's a manhunt. Even Dog the Bounty Hunter himself is out looking for the guy. So uh, we've gone from all that to just focusing on uh, this Biden administration and they have everything on the line this week. Uh, much of Joe Biden's decline in approval rating is surrounding his response to this pandemic. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when he took over the office of the presidency, we were absolutely losing incredible amount of human capital to the pandemic. As we speak, upwards of very close, if not over the top, of uh, we've lost 700,000 lives to coronavirus. 700,000. And largely due to just this efficacy around trying to convince people to get vaccinated. And so the issue of vaccination is looming large this week. Um, there are teachers that are facing some very, very difficult decisions, and it's not just teachers. It's really come down to either get the vaccine or submit yourself to uh, testing, which means that's going to be a swab up the nose. Uh, I have personally never had a coronavirus test, but I have seen it administered. It looks, <laughs> it, 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 it looks painful, if not painful, very uncomfortable, very inconvenient to have to submit to that. Uh, on a frequent basis, but that is the choice that's being provided to people, but some people do not like that choice, okay? Some people feel that this is an authoritarian grab on behalf of the Joe Biden administration and even people that voted for him, they're not with this enforcement of uh, the vaccine mandate, okay? They, they think it's unconstitutional. There are people that want to leave the state of California now. They just feel like it's become too tyrannical and then they feel like their freedoms are, are, you know, not being acknowledged anymore. They consider themselves to be in the land of the free, and yet they can't make a decision about what goes into their body. Now, the problem or the issues that emerge out of something like this is that all these contradictions are exposed, right? All the hypocrisies are exposed for people that have been pro-choice. Let a woman choose what she does with her body. Okay, now all of a sudden, those same people, some of them are okay being required to get a vaccine. So those that have been okay and supportive of women and Roe v. Wade, uh, excuse me, Roe v. Wade are now suddenly okay with the government uh, exerting this uh, governmental federalized influence on them and mandating that they get a shot that they don't want. Okay, so what about that? And what about um, all the uh, people who are truly anti this vaccine, not necessarily anti-vax, because one, Republican criticism of the Biden administration is that they feel like Kamala Harris and Joe Biden were previously against vaccines. But what was actually happening was that at the time of the presidency of the former guy that was in office, he was stressing hydroxychloroquine. He was stressing these uh, treatments that had not been wholesale tested and proven. And so, yeah, he wanted to rush out a solution to a problem that he did not uh, effectively uh, work hard enough to, to quell in its early stages because he didn't take it seriously at all. But then suddenly he saw a political opportunity for him heading into an election so that if they could find a, 
a, a cure for it or a, a vaccine while he was still in office, he would take credit for it. And so, of course, uh, he started pushing this hydroxychloroquine. And yeah, you know, no sane person was going to be following his recommendation. And so, yeah, they were against the, the senselessness of trying to follow the leadership of somebody who does not know science. Okay. So the Biden and Harris administration have never been against vaccines. They're against stupidity. But nevertheless, people consider them um, operating under a guise of stupidity right now because even his supporters, uh, they're pretty rattled right now. And I have to say, the country is in a delicate fight right now. So to put it into context, teachers are facing this crisis as well of having to make a very difficult decision about whether or not they're going to get vaccinated. And it's very daunting to have the government coming down on you. But uh, listen to this clip right here. This kind of sums up what the battle is all about. Check this out. We have some breaking news to share this in the COVID pandemic. A federal judge has temporarily blocked New York City schools from enforcing a vaccine mandate for those teachers days before it was set to begin. City officials say they expected the review and ruling to take place soon. They anticipate that the mandate will ultimately be upheld. But it comes as a new phase in the vaccination drive is underway across the country. Booster shots are going into the arms of certain Americans this weekend, but there are questions and there's some confusion that remains around all of it. Questions and confusion remain. I mean, that's been the crux of what the battle has been all about. And so people are praying and hoping that somehow this will be extended, but most people suspect that this is going to be a temporary freeze and that the mandate is going to be upheld. And uh, there are going to be endless legal challenges, to, despite the fact that the Biden administration claims that they are uh, following a legal precedent that dates back into the uh, early 20th century. And so where's a happy medium, okay? Is a happy medium even achievable, obtainable, okay? Because there are those on the other side of this that have been saying, okay, we've been uh, soft soaping this for a long time. We've been saying, please, 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 please go get the vaccine because we're tired of seeing our loved ones die. We're tired of wearing masks. We're tired of social distancing. We're tired of having restrictions when we travel. We're tired of not being able to go into restaurants freely. We're tired, we're tired, we're tired of not being able to move about this country freely and without inhibition. And we're tired of being required to exercise all of these precautions, okay? So we're so tired of it that some people are willing, fully willing to comply with anything that's recommended by sensible, credible sources that's designed to help us get up out of this mess. A lot of people are experiencing a serious heavy dose of COVID fatigue, ladies and gentlemen. They don't want to follow this, but they're willing to. But then there are some who might be on either side of the political spectrum and they're saying, no, we're supposed to be Americans. We're, we're, we're supposed to be free. Okay. so. What <laughs> you can't please all parties, but the problem is when people lose their sense of compassion and you develop this, uh, what's called compassion fatigue and you're tired of waiting on people to do the right thing, you know, as far as what they deem to be the right thing, you know, because again, people who are not vaccinated at this point, they don't feel like they're wrong for that. And far be it for us to know what their individual lab reports say medically 
that is probably prompting them to make the decisions that they are. But see, that's the thing. It's all about really making a choice because people that are holding out on the vaccine, especially in the wake of now uh, children ages five to 12 have been approved by the FDA to get the, the Pfizer shot. <laughs> now, people with young, small children, they're like, OK, wait a minute. OK, I don't think if I'm not sure about this, but I don't think it's mandated at this point, but it has been approved for children ages five to 12. Now, parents out there, all of a sudden they realize, it's, OK, I'm willing to fall on my sword. I'm willing to take a bullet for my kids. But now you're saying that it's coming down the pipe that my kids may have to be mandated to get shots. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. So it's very interesting to see what this pandemic has brought out of us. I mean, it is a public health crisis. And what's sad is that we can't even get on the same page about how we're going to wage this fight. And I'd suggest, you know, I, I this is a mental health show, ladies and gentlemen. So I, I just think that a lot of it just comes down to choice and people really not willing to uh, commit to that choice or better yet. It, it's not even that. Uh, Y'all remember the movie The Matrix? You know, shout out to my good brother, Mr. Stephen Mack. He has this wonderful podcast called uh, Deconstructing the Matrix. And um, the Oracle, played famously by uh, the late, great Gloria Foster. I mean, and then subsequently by Mary Alice, another great actress who's still here with us. But the Oracle, her whole presence in the, the universe of The Matrix was short, but highly, highly um poignant and pervasive throughout the entire Matrix universe, because what she's saying and what she did say to Neo, you remember, y'all remember that scene, right? Where it's like, you did not come here to make the choice. You've already made the choice. You're here to understand why you made that choice. And one of her most famous lines was like, people can't see past the choices that they make or the, they can't under, they can't see past the choices that they don't understand, something like that. But see, that's the real thing, because people have already made their choice. And so why am I going through all this? I think the happy medium is somehow uh, if you want to be able to uh, manage in a moment like this where it's all up in the air, because it's not about getting the right information anymore. You know, shouts out to my good brother, Dr. Chase Moore, because I was talking to him about this the other day. It's not necessarily about having information. It's not necessarily anymore about having qualified experts to speak on it. It's not necessarily about having uh, the right uh, messengers out there. It's not about that. It's something else. OK, it's something else. And it's just it just really just comes down to what it came down to in the Matrix. It's like the whole job of the Oracle was to unbalance the equation of the architect and provide choice and knowing that choice, you know, centered around the emotions of people and the emotion of love like was what was existing between Neo and Trinity in the movie The Matrix, it's a risky proposition because now that takes it out of the realm of logic, machines, uh, being very calculated. And so the element of choice really throws a wrench into the whole thing to where you really have to understand your motivations. You have to understand and somehow make peace with the choices that you make. And when those choices are quite consequential, like what's facing our te uh, nation's teachers, because about 88% of them are vaccinated, 12% are holding out for whatever reason. And so if there is a windfall and a shortage of staff, and you know we're just talking about education right now, but across the board, 
if we end up having a shortage of staff, what then will become of our country? As a former substitute teacher <laughs> for 14 years, I was a substitute teacher in Southern California and I love my job too, because I was one of the best ones. <laughs> no, I'm being modest. I was the best one because my classroom management skills were impeccable. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But I could hold down a classroom, but see on the serious side, students need their teachers. They need qualified, experienced, credentialed teachers to educate them because only they have received the training necessary to impart curriculum and to impart knowledge and to give them the academic rigor that they need in order to be successful at their respective grade levels and get them to the next level. We need our teachers in the classroom. So what's going to happen if a lot of teachers choose who choose not to become vaccinated? Now we have this incredible vacuum happening in our nation's classrooms to where we no longer have uh, teachers to teach them. Now, yeah, we'll have substitute teachers like I was for 14 years, but guarantee the population that will tend to be hurt the most will be the students who have individualized education plans, students with IEPs, students who are exceptional, students who need the support of their credentialed teachers. And they're always the hardest hit because there's no greater turnover uh, department in the field of education other than special education. Those kids always get it the hardest. And so this week is going to be very consequential. Uh, the decision about this is coming down the pipe. Uh, that's just education. We haven't even talked uh, you know, too much about the Biden administration. Man, they're going into this budget reconciliation fight. They have the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's already been passed, uh, $3.5 trillion by the Senate, bipartisan. But progressives in the Democratic caucus are holding out that they want uh, the reconciliation bill passed that has all the goodies that they like, including the climate change and uh, the social safety net, all of those things. And progressives such as Pramila Jayabal, she said, mm-mm-mm-mm, ain't voting on that. We ain't voting on the infrastructure bill until y'all come correct with the reconciliation bill. So reconciliation is a, a, a political uh, apparatus where you can pass legislation in the Senate without uh, a 60 vote threshold. It becomes filibuster proof because with a simple majority, you can pass certain legislations through what's called reconciliation. An example of that is uh, they did it with the Affordable Care Act and actually COBRA. Uh, if you have COBRA, uh, which is some insurance you can get after you don't have your job anymore and you can pay out of pocket monthly for uh, temporary insurance until you get your next job. That's called COBRA. Well, that's a reconciliation bill and it was passed. Uh, I can't recall exactly what administration passed COBRA, but that is an example of a reconciliation bill. And it's a strategic maneuver to get around the filibuster. And so uh, Democrats, they, you know, usually they're fighting with Republicans. But of course, once again, the circular fire squad, circular fire squad, that is, kicks in once again. And Democrats have control of both chambers and the White House and are facing the prospect of it all blowing up this week. This week, ladies and gentlemen, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, says they will definitely pass an infrastructure bill this week. Will that be enough to curb the, the, the support that Joe Biden is just bleeding from his poll numbers? Now, I'm not one to focus on poll numbers so much, so much because we are far, far away from the general election. 
However, the midterm elections are coming up in 2022, and Republicans are foaming at the mouth thinking that's going to be a red wave for them. Uh, that remains to be seen. But they have stalled. I mean, people were very, very supportive of Joe Biden coming into his uh, term in office and knowing that he was administering and making sure that uh, the federalized, nationalized strategy for rolling out the vaccines and making them available to people. As soon as he came into office, he hit the ground running. And people were, you know, in, in, you know, supporting him. And then he rolled out the relief checks and, you know, people were like, yeah, go Biden. And even, you know, to his credit, you know, although the Afghanistan pullout was pretty shaky, he got the people out. Yes, there are still some people there in Sacramento. There's still some Afghans that are still out of Sacramento, California, that are still stuck in Afghanistan. So it has not been a pretty process by any stretch. But we just had that Haitian crisis that I was talking to you about, and they have uh, airlifted and flown out Haitians. And I'm, not, and I'm not saying this was a good thing, but I'm just saying his response to things have been swift because he knows about the levers of of government. He knows how to get things done. And that, for some, is the reason why people fear him. They think he's racist and they, they don't trust him because he's just two sides of the same coin, whether it be Democrat or Republican. But the, the dude is getting things done. And to the chagrin of people on the left, the political left, he's still not getting enough done fast enough to overcome the resistance of people like Kristen Sinema in Arizona and Joe Manchin in West Virginia to the point where the entire Biden agenda is stalled because they can't come to terms about this reconciliation bill that progressives want. So this week, ladies and gentlemen, just stay tuned. It could all blow up. Okay, if he doesn't get this through, he's just had two major meetings with them this past week, ladies and gentlemen, meeting with the Democratic caucus to try to bring them in line, because as they say, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. Mitch McConnell don't have any trouble keeping his caucus in line. It's the Democrats that are always infighting amongst themselves. And so because of all that resistance they have to overcome, uh, it's going to be tough. It's going to be very tough. I mean, it's no joke, all right? So if there's any consolation with any of this, I mean, as far as the, the, the vaccine, I mean, they're predicting in about one year, things may get back to normal. Um, one of the CEOs of Pfizer, uh, Albert Borla, he anticipates a return to normal life post-pandemic within a year. You know, a lot of things will have to line up. But I'm telling you, during that time, again, Republicans are seizing or they're trying to, they're trying to seize on all of this, okay? And Trump is holding rallies again. I mean, he just held a couple of rallies where uh, Herschel Walker, former NFL player, was running for a Senate seat against Raphael Warnock. Uh, Trump is trying to make his case for a 2024 run, and I'm saying bring it on. Because once again, um, <laughs> in Arizona, they had their own audit this time, they being Republicans, and they had Trump Republicans doing the recount just recently, and guess what? Big surprise, Trump lost again by more than he lost before. Now, <laughs> if that sounds familiar, I've been saying that if Trump wins again, he's gonna lose by a far wider margin than he did this time. And I'm saying that even in the midst of now. Joe Biden is vulnerable right now, ladies and gentlemen, okay? But again, every president takes a, a, a hit to their poll numbers when they come into office. 
or soon after they start governing. I mean, it's very easy to campaign against the other side when you're running for office, but when you have to govern and get things done, well, that's when the sausage making begins because that is not a pretty process. I mean, it's ugly and it's brutal and you hope at the end of it, you have this tasty little palatable meal to con consume and digest, but the process is very, very taxing and ugly and it taxes and maxes out the patience of the voters that put people into office, okay? And Trump is trying once again to get into office, despite the fact that he keeps losing and losing and losing and losing and losing and losing and losing. And most recently, just a few days ago, another re-audit out of Arizona proved once again that Joe Biden not only beat Donald Trump, but he beat him by 300 more votes than was originally counted the first time. And this time it's Trump Republicans on the floor. Uh, I think they call themselves the cyber ninjas or something like that. They counted the votes. They found no fraud. They say that he lost by a bigger margin. Now, Republicans are trying to make this stink that uh, some ballots were tossed out or they weren't legit. And again, they're not doing it in good faith. They're not doing these recounts in good faith to try to restore faith in the electoral process. They're doing it simply to sow discord so that people never again trust the system. But I'm telling you, it's going to backfire because just like he suppressed votes in Georgia, and that's why Georgia flipped to the Democrats, not only in the Senate, but in the White House. They're bleeding voters. OK, and what's so sad about this, the Delta variant is running through red state Trump districts that Trump won, you know, 90 percent by large margins. Those are the people that are dying from coronavirus right now. The Delta variant uh, is no discriminator of color or political party. It don't care. And that's why you had all these prominent right wing talk show uh, hosts out there talking about uh, it's a hoax and don't trust the vaccine. And they're following the Trumpian and Ron DeSantis line of logic saying, uh, go get the, 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 the monoclonal cocktail instead of getting the, the, the vaccine shot that's been approved by the FDA. And so again, they're not doing things on behalf of the public in good faith. It's just simply to sow discord. All right. We talked last week with Jeff and Lori about Beto O'Rourke running for governor in Texas. I mean, we'll have to see. But I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, there are a lot of things going on. So I want you to stay tuned and watch the news this week with regard to this vaccine fight and teachers and whether or not the judge will overturn and reinstate the vaccine mandate, making it necessary for teachers to come into the classroom either with uh, cleared uh, vaccine, being fully vaccinated or submitting themselves to testing and what that fallout is going to mean, not just across the education system of this country, but across many industries across these United States of America. We are at a tipping point, ladies and gentlemen. So we'll have to see how it goes. So this is KCWG, the truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. We're just breaking it down with the weekend news. That was quite a rapid fire breakdown and takedown. We got A. Scott Galloway coming up in a little bit. We're going to be paying tribute to the late and great Mr. Melvin Van Peebles tonight, y'all. So stay tuned for more. We'll be right back with the rest of our show after this. All my friends, tell you late, tell you late. Bow to me, bow to me, kneel for me, kneel for me. Kiss the ring, kiss the ring. Bow to me, bow to me, kneel for me, kneel for me. 
Pay homage to the king in your life. Wisdom and security, I give that. Devotion and honesty, I show that. Passion and love, you feel that. Bow down, girl, you need to show some respect. Obedience and loyalty, I need that. Friendship and trust, I've earned that. Gratitude, appreciation, I deserve that. Bow down, pay homage to the king in your life. Baby girl, what's the deal? What's the deal? Got no time for freaking girl, you're acting mad. Acting Never one for nothing, cause I'm paying the bills. I'm paying the bills. Sleeping all day, the house is filthy. No, no meal. Come on, girl, give me some feedback. Give me feedback. Let me know what's good, what's up. Where's your head at? Up, Giving me you? attitude, not today, girl. Dead that. Strip off some clothes, I'm trying to beat that. Bed that. You're really saying not tonight? Not tonight. My blood is boiling hot, girl. You're getting me tight. Aw, oh, man. To the, right, to the right, to the right, don't let that door hit your ass when you leave, you talking like you hot, you not, shorty, I know dime pieces, trust me, you not, you not, I can get a next chick, next one. like Gucci said in the next 15 minutes, you ain't special, don't be foolish, running around town like you rich, no, I'm rich, without me, you wouldn't even have that, I'm Scrooge McDuck swimming in money, hold my top hat, Park Avenue lifestyle, you love it, you're acting out of order and now you're gonna lose it, you claim that you're in love with me, in love with me, you wanna be my wifey, be my wifey, that's looking pretty bleak, unlikely, you should've paid how much girl, up, can't do it, no more, I'm done, I'm fed up, game over, clock ran out, girl, your time's up, get your things, have a nice life, keep your head up, like Shaq and Kobe was a good team, but now we broke up, should've bowed to me, bowed to me, kneel for me, kneel for me, Kiss the ring, kiss the ring. Bow to me, bow to me. Kneel for me, kneel for me. Pay homage to the king in your life. Wisdom and security, I give that. Devotion and honesty, I show that. Passion and love, you feel that. Bow down, girl, you need to show some respect. Obedience and loyalty, I need that. Friendship and trust, I've earned that. Gratitude, appreciation, I deserve that. Bow down, pay homage to the king in your life. Uh, Melvin Van Peebles, folks, today passed away at his home in Manhattan at the age of 89. Uh, he was more than just uh, a director. Uh, he was an author. He was a composer, broke Broadway plays, served time as a stockbroker uh, for at, at one point. Uh, and he's done all kinds of stuff. Um, and in fact, folks, that movie uh, that he did, Sweet Speedback's Badass Song, uh, he needed to finish the movie. And he went to a bunch of people. No one would give him money. One of the folks who did was Bill Cosby, who gave him $50,000 to finish the film. Uh, Van Peebles said that Bill Cosby did not want equity in the movie. All he wanted was his money back. Well, he got his money back because how much that movie made. Uh, we reached out to uh, Bill Cosby. We got this exclusive statement through his uh, rep, uh, Andrew Wyatt. This is what Bill Cosby had to say about the death of Mario Van Peebles. Melvin's work as a composer, writer, and performer need to be studied. He was very prolific and at times prophetic. The two original 33 and a third albums, Rare Soul and Ain't Supposed to Die Natural Death, are amazing. Written, composed, and performed by the great Melvin Van Peebles. In his time, Melvin did not have the luxury of producers and directors of today. Thank you, Melvin.
story in in five minutes. I was born in Chicago. I was a child prodigy, and I finished college when I was 20 years old. And but to finish college, because my parents were poor, I took um, a course. I didn't know what the course was, but the course meant I was an officer in the Air Force. So when I was 20, I was flying jets. Um, and I did that for a number of years. And then I lived in Mexico, where Mario was born. And then I lived in San Francisco, and I fell in love um, with, well, I'd always been in love, actually, with cinema. And someone, I wrote a book, and someone got on my cable car. I used to be a gripman, you know, those big guys that pulled the, the, the cable cars. Well, and someone said, hmm? The yeah. brake kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, up in the just a big metal piece and so forth. And the, the guy said, you know, your book is just like a movie. I said, shit, I'll go into movies. And so that's how I went into movies. There was one little thing, though. I didn't have any, any music. And so... I couldn't afford anyone, so I numbered all the keys on the piano. I didn't know how to read or write music, and I wrote the numbers, and then I played the music. However, when I finished my films, Hollywood would not take a black person to work. And so I was discouraged and went to Holland and I was getting my PhD in another something, in astronomy. I'm an astronomer, mathematician also. And while I was in Holland, the French cinema tech saw my work and said I was a genius. And I said, ah, finally somebody who understands me. <laughs> and so I went, to, I went to, to Paris and I made my first feature there after 70 I was a used to be what we call clochard I used to to beg in the streets and little by little I learned to speak French because that was a problem I didn't know to speak French and then I I wrote the score and then I made another movie later called Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and I wrote the music for that and that started taking off and at that time, what was happening um, was there were the, what we call the, the Black Revolution was going on in America. But the music was not revolutionary. And it was still blues or just straight jazz, but none of it talked about what was really going on. And since I couldn't sing, I started doing music, however, myself. And this took off and this became hip hop and it became rap. And that's what happened. Um, and that's, that's the story, Jerry.
Hey, we are back. KCWG, the truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome, and ladies and gentlemen, you know on this program, we always try to pay tribute to the greats. Actually, we, we, we often do, and oftentimes when we do, it's a somber but joyous occasion. However, uh, I have to bring out the best of the best. We just lost Melvin Van Peebles. That's right, groundbreaking filmmaker from the 70s on through the 2000s. He passed away just a few days ago. He is a celebrated, renowned figure in the world of black cinema. Uh, we made a transition with him and uh, the world is reeling. And uh, I want to get an idea of just exactly uh, what his imprint was and remains to be. So to help me have this conversation, I am proud to welcome this good brother. Y'all know this good, come on, man. Y'all know this good brother, man. He's been here before. Uh, he's a celebrated figure in the world of uh, music journalism. He's a drummer. Uh, he's super talented, and I'm always honored to welcome him here. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, our good brother, Mr. A. Scott Galloway. Mr. Galloway, are you back? I'm back. What's going on? What's cool? Sweet back. Man, sweet back too. Oh my goodness. Hey, Scott Galloway back in the feck. How you been, man? Man, sweet back, man. It's like, man, mm. I want to talk to you about this, man, because, you know, before we started recording, we're, we're talking about uh, music and I'm just thinking about Melvin as well and how he incorporated a particular group that helped him uh, land this film and stick the landing with this film in the 70s. But he also... Uh, had a groundbreaking uh, influence on a particular band, and you know who I'm talking about. But good brother, let let's just flow with the flow, as they say. What can you <laughs> tell when you heard the news of the transition of Melvin Van Peebles, Mr. A. Scott Galloway? What went through your mind, man? Oh man, a lot of things, a lot of things. I mean, I, I remember seeing uh, Sweet Sweetback's badass song probably earlier than I should have, you know, <laughs> as a pretty young person, right. Um, I thought it was pretty, pretty wild, pretty adventurous and unique motion picture at the time. Um, uh, it's, it's revolutionary uh, what he was able to do uh, on a very small budget, but he was exercising his independence and, uh, and his creativity with, with a serious black gavel. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. And as, a, as years have gone by and, and I've returned to the film, you know, I just marvel more and more and where it went from just being this kind of wacky, crazy, you know, black film to something that was, you know, very brilliant and, and um, just, just a, a, a really revolutionary piece. You know? um, I, I'm as a record collector, I remember him, I have all of his albums, you know, and the same thing, you know, you get these records and it's like, what the hell is this? You know, he's, mm. he's, kind of sing speaking over music and you know it's like poetry and spoken word but there is, is a, a very dominant musical element to it as well you know mm -hmm. um i remember actually reciting one of his pieces uh, which called three boxes of longs please which came off of his, his third his second album ain't supposed to die a natural death i actually recited that piece of uh Hmm. literature in a African studies class, you know, when I was in college. Wow. And uh, so I had personal memory and the fact that the brother was born, you know, many years before me, but, you know, we shared the same birthday, August 21st. Oh, snap. I, I was always very proud of that. And it's like, yeah, Melvin Van Peebles, Count Basie, Wilt Chamberlain, you know, I'm in good company <laughs> <Good job. laughs> on, my, on my birthday, you know, so um, 
Right. What a legend, though. What 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 a legend. Wow. Uh, gave us a wonderful son, Mario Van yes. Peebles, who's also done a lot of wonderful work and has been as uh, not quite as revolutionary, but definitely on the independent uh, tip. Right. I think that's probably one of the greatest things that Melvin Van Peebles left us was the the concept of of, of doing your own thing. You know, you know, investing in yourself. Uh, it paid off big for him. You know, uh, that mm-hmm. movie. I forgot how much he actually. Um, I'm sure we have that figure here. I'm looking at something now. Uh, the budget was 150 thousand, and box office about 20 million. Yeah, about 15 mil. Yeah, you know, I mean, come on now, <laughs> come on now. And, and, and he was he was showing that film. You know, one of my favorite stories about that film is after he made it, he was showing it, taking the print from city to city, and screening it wherever he could, you know, screen it because it had been rated X by famously, you know, all white jury, he was, he was showing that film in people's garages. He was showing it in, you know, small public, you know, uh, you know, whatever, you know, it wasn't in conventional movie theater, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and he was bound and determined to get his film seen. I don't think he knew how successful it was going to be. I'm sure he couldn't have, right. uh, but uh, he believed in it. And um, it's also great that, uh, one of my favorite things since he passed that I've come to realize is that, you know, he started the first film, full length feature film that he made, Story of a Three Day Pass. You know, he did that over in Europe and it was very much with, you know, the French film aesthetic, you know, an art film, you know. Mm-hmm. And he, so for his first film, that's what he did. He's like, okay, I can do that. And that film got him the attention of Hollywood and uh, they didn't even know he was black you know, because he'd won an See? award, you know, in France, they assumed Melvin Van Peebles must be, you know, they probably thought he was German or something, you know, mm-hmm. but they courted him and he ended up getting to do a picture, a, a movie for Columbia Pictures that a lot of us remember, uh, Watermelon Man, <clears throat> starring uh. Godfrey, the comedian, com- comedic actor, Godfrey Cambridge. Mm. And uh, he has since, you know, Melvin kind of divorced himself from that film a lot. You know, he wasn't very happy with the way it came out. And uh, he never really liked to talk about it. My friend Mike Stratford works for um, different film companies that reissue things on CD. I'm, I'm sorry, on DVD. Mm. Uh, wanted to have him do uh, a spoken introduction or, 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 you know, a Q&A as bonus material for the DVD. And Melvin initially asked he said no i don't want to do that you know mm. but uh mike sent him a nice package of of uh company dvds and then melvin called him back and said see man you know you're just trying to make me feel bad because now you've sent me this beautiful you know gift box and now i feel obligated to do something so in in true melvin van peebles form he decided to do a spoken introduction instead of a q a talking mm. about the process of what led up to the film because yeah. he wasn't really feeling the way that uh, the film came out. But anyway, he went from European art film to Hollywood film for his second film. And then after that, the brother was independent. He said, I'm just going to do something on my own. Uh, and that was of course, after a bunch of short films that he did before the first feature film. You know, he created a lot of shorts, the first one being like in the, in the late 50s, you know. So, wow. you know, the man was prolific and brilliant and, and um a uh, a real spearhead for for 
not just black folks, you know, but particularly for us, but not just black folks. Mm-hmm. Anybody who had an idea about wanting to do something out of the box and 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 revolutionary, the message was do it, get it done, do it yourself, own it, yes. and um and and get it out there, get your hustle on. Yo, totally, totally. You know, I had DJ Chaos on. Uh, I spoke to him months ago when his dear friend Shock G passed away, and I replayed mm. an unreleased broadcast a couple of weeks ago, Scott. And he was, we were talking about the fact that he had a chance to uh, go on tour with George Clinton and the P Funk All Stars during the days of uh, R and B skeletons in the closet. Ooh. And so, he had a, ch- <laughs> I, folks, you should go back and listen to that episode. But the whole point was that. Um, he was facing a dilemma and had to get back to the Bay Area and George and the P-Funkers were down in Southern California. So we got into this whole discussion. I said to him, yeah, man, a few years ago, I learned in order to become famous in Detroit, you got to leave Detroit. In order to become famous in New York, you got to leave New York. Same thing for L.A. To become famous in L.A., you got to leave L.A. And I bring that up because you talk about how Melvin Van Peebles became such a sort of a bulwark, a, a, a a name to to of, of renown outside of the United States and people when he added the van to his name started to you know I guess have this image of something or someone other than what he was uh can you speak to us about that a little bit as far as what that did for his career I mean back then we had Shaft we had um Superfly uh all this is, I mean, I'm thinking, I, I, I'm not sure about the story arc and the timeline with all of this, but he spearheaded, I'm just going to borrow your term, Scott. He was the tip of the spear. You know what I'm saying? And, Pretty and much. Cor- I mean, there, there was somebody made a point uh, on social media that Cotton Comes to Harlem actually came out before Sweetback. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that was done by Ozzie Davis. And so, you know, and I think, you know, that film, uh, did go through a major studio, but it was Ozzy Davis at the helm of it. And Ozzy mm-hmm. later, very soon after, also did Buck and the Preacher. And yes. then, but, but on that completely independent side, you had, um, you know, you had Melvin. And I guess Cotton Comes to Harlem, you know, it, it was it was urban, it was ghetto. It had, you know, pimps and prostitutes and mm-hmm. drugs, guns and, and that sort of thing. Um, so, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't know if we've ever had the discussion. I just have a real problem with uh, the term black exploitation and how many black films get kind of shoved under it. Where right. you know, I just don't think that every movie that a black person came out with in the 70s belongs under the terminology of black exploitation. Oh, I mean, absolutely not. Yes. Sounder is not and Cooley High is not and Car Wash mm-hmm. and the River Niger is not. I mean, there's a lot of really good films. Uh, and yeah. I mean, and the black exploitation films were, were very profitable and enjoyable. I like them, you know, they are a thing, but I think of them in a very specific term. And, uh, and Sweetback kind of, um, in, in to my eye, uh, uh, teetered between, you know, like just a, a kind of a black street art film and, and and the exploitation aspect of it, you know, simply, I guess, mostly because of the scene of his son, very, very young. I, how old was Mario when he mm-hmm. did that, that scene in Sweetback? I mean, he, I think he was like seven or something. Seven okay, or yes. Not, don't quote me on that, but he was very uh-huh. young. Yes. 
And uh, and Melvin, you know, he didn't trip off it. He said, "Yeah, I did it. It was business. He knew it was going to be something that everybody would talk about." Uh, and you know, in reviewing his film, critiquing his film, or or just you know, water cooler conversation about the film. And he had his own son, his little boy. <laughs> you know, having sex with the with the grown woman. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm trying to to keep the language cool here. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but. Uh, yeah, man. So I, I so that's why it's theater. You know, you know. But again, you know, the film. You know, he has barely any dialogue in the film. Right. You know? um, so I mean, there's all these very artistic aspects to it. You know, it was it was, you know, very uh, not non-linear. It, you know, it it uh, a lot of soundtrack, and music, and sound effects and things, and and very little dialogue. It was it was a very different kind of picture. It sounded like he was the very first person to do those things, but he was the one of the first black uh, filmmakers to do something like that. You know, in the realm of color and in the realm of just radical black thinking. I think the Black Panthers, which is one of the first and only films that they um, gave their stamp of approval to. I shouldn't say only, right. but it's one of the first ones, especially one that would be considered out there for entertainment purposes and, and not a documentary or something. Well, see, that's just it too, because it was unapologetic, right? Because right. I, that, I, I've, I admit, I, have <laughs> I still have not seen Superfly. I still have not seen Shaft. What? I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But I have what? seen Sweetback. I have seen Sweetback, though. <laughs> why and is that? Okay, so why did you see Sweetback if you didn't see the bigger commercial pitch? I, I don't know, Scott, because in fact, I didn't even see Sweetback until Mario did a remake of Badass. Well, he he remade his father's, uh, the making of it, and right. of retold the story. So I, I saw Badass first, and then I went back and saw Sweet Sweetback. And I actually didn't like Sweet Sweetback. I thought it was a little, uh, well, for its time, I, you know, I, I came to appreciate it knowing that he really literally just, it was grassroots bootstrap. He used the elements of that fire truck that came into the scene was a real <laughs> invasion onto the shot. Right. And be, all those things I came to really appreciate. Why have I never seen Shaft and Superfly? Scott, I, I wish I had a better answer. It's like, I, I tried. I wish I had a sexy story about how I hurt my back. I hurt my back by just <laughs> sitting and working an eight-hour day. I didn't get injured playing football or basketball. I was sitting. <laughs> mm, mm, I don't mm, have a sexy mm. story, and I'm missing out, right, Scott? Because I, I don't oh. have a chance to really appreciate what the how the art form uh, contributed to black cinema and black filmmakers to come afterward. Okay, because we're talking Gordon Parks, uh, Melvin Van Peebles. Um, all these great directors that spearheaded Gordon Parks, you know, Gordon Parks Sr. did Shaft and Gordon Parks Jr. Mm-hmm. did Superfly. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I get into, I, I mentioned my friend Mike Stratford earlier, uh, and mm-hmm. we, you know, he loved that film. He, he's a little, he's a little older than I am. And mm-hmm. when Shaft came out, it made a really big impact on Black men. You know, this guy who was just cool as hell and dressed, you know, he had the bad leather jacket. He's, you know, just the image of him, you know, walking yes. down down a street, you know, um, was something that, you know, uh, black folks, you know, really uh, appreciated, you know, but, you know, I don't like that film. I don't like Shaft. I like, I like the other two Shafts more than the first one. Oh, wow. I think from the, from the very start, I was disappointed because I didn't get to see it when it came out. I was too young. 
Mm-hmm. But, but of course, we had the soundtrack all up in the house. See, that's what I'm saying. I got the oh, soundtracks, though, Scott. Yeah, okay, well, you know, <laughs> good. Okay, you, you guys a gold star for, for Rome for having the soundtrack. <laughs> but uh, yeah. On you know, vinyl. When you, went, when you hear the soundtracks as they were recorded for a record and then uh, you listen to the way they were done on the film studio, still Isaac Hayes, still doing mm-hmm. his thing. But, you know, I perfected that music on for the oh, record. absolutely. In the movie... It just wasn't as bumping, so that disappointed me. I oh. thought that it was very, you know, the film was kind of just stodgy and dialogue-wise and everything. I, the action wasn't happening. I just, I don't mm. like it all. And I've tried, Rome. I've tried, I've went to see mm. that film five times, like different festivals or different revival house. I'd be like, I'm not doing nothing today. Let me give Champ another shot. I don't <laughs> like it. Wow. Superfly, I love Superfly. You know, it, it's okay. it's an imperfect film. It also, you know, it was written by someone who, you know, had written it originally for the stage, I think. And mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, they adapted it into the film. And, uh, you know, but it just, it, it has a much hipper feel. The soundtrack is the real soundtrack. The music you hear on the Superfly soundtrack is wow. exactly the same music that you hear in the movie. Great performances same. from everybody, you know, mm-hmm. uh, all the characters, Fat Freddy, and um, I forget Sheila Frazier's character's name. Um, of oh, course, the great late great O'Neill, Carl McGregor, and uh, wow. and my man that played Eddie. I mean, you know, I just I can tell you that, that movie you, you will definitely enjoy. You know, Shaft. You know, we'll have to talk about it. But Superfly, you know, but Sweetback <laughs> was so different from those. You know, I mean, it was because of Sweetback that those films got a shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it's like you know, because of Sweetback, you know, the industry found out, you know, hey, there's an audience of black folks that are hungry to see themselves on the screen, um, and and then they went the wrong direction with it, saying, you know, we can we can throw just about anything up on the screen, and as long as it's got black folks on it, these black folks are going to come and see it, and we're going to get that money, and that's wow. what became a very big problem. Uh, as the 70s rolled on it's like you know you know you we've told that how many times you're going to tell the the drugs pimping and um yeah ghetto life stories there's so many other stories to be told oh yeah you know? yes. uh, they just wanted to sit in that you know they just wanted to sit right <laughs> in that uh from a hollywood standpoint so again you know um melvin didn't make another picture like speedback after he did that right you know, stuff was you know, um, the the filming of his stage play was "Don't Play Us Cheap." Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's the second one. The first one was, um, oh my goodness. Uh, well, I don't, I don't think you're wrong. Let me see. Let me go back. Well, while you think about it, this is KCWG, the Truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. My name is EJ Rome. We're chopping it up with the good brother, Mr. A. Scott Galloway. We're breaking down the life and creative legacy of the recently transitioned Melvin Van Peebles, who passed away. Uh, not too long ago, ladies and gentlemen, uh, he's going to be sorely missed as being one of the uh, the uh, the flag planters of black cinema and uh, just really putting it down. Scott, um, it's, it's interesting um, as you're still thinking about that. It's, it's, there was it, Don't Play as Cheap, but before that, he yeah. didn't supposed to die a natural death. That was off Broadway. Yes, uh, it, was, it started off Broadway and then it went to Broadway. But and that was also the title of that second album that I pulled that uh, that that I recited in college from. Oh, you know, yeah. I mean, so he had so many ideas. And when I and when I uh, eulogized him on my Facebook page, you know, I really set him, everybody thinks of him, most people think of him first and foremost as a film director, but 
I think of him first and foremost as a writer. And he wrote so right. many things. I mean, I mean, he Absolutely. wrote, he was the editor of a French version of Mad Magazine, you know, before, oh, you know, wow. they tried to, they tried to, they tried to issue a bet, mm. uh, a version of that in France, you know, when he was over there and, you know, it only lasted for five issues, but he, he was doing that. He did all sorts of editing and writing and, and book writing and, and, you know, you know, Broadway scripts and then musical. Mm -hmm. He's a songwriter. I mean, you know, and he wrote and did all the marketing and ad copy, you know, for his pictures and stuff. You know, so he, I've just always thought of him as someone um, where it all started with the writing. And then, you know, because of the independent spirit and streak and, and his creativity, you know, he wanted to, to handle it all so that his right. vision not sullied or muddied or, or distorted in any way he's going to control it, you know, as many different, wear as many hats as he could to control his product. Absolutely. You know, it's a uh, reason why I love having you here, Scott. You, you notice how easily we just segued into music because music was such an important element to, to everything uh, Melvin did as well. You know, he, um, you know, famously, because you were talking about uh, uh, Shaft and mm. how the music wasn't or it, it didn't seem to fit because you remember when Jesse Johnson, uh, the guitarist at the time, mm -hmm. uh, he did the uh, the score, not the scout soundtrack, but the score for the uh, Samuel Jackson film, A Time to Kill. Okay. And so you listen to those licks and those riffs and the movie, A Time to Kill, that's Jesse Johnson of the time, but it was never released as a soundtrack. But it just goes to show that people uh, really value the 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 role that music plays as it relates to what's happening on the screen. And Melvin kind of valued that too. Uh, real quick, he's also known uh, famously for uh, a scene that you might recall, Scott. Uh, I wanna to talk to you more about the music, but before we run out of time, I just remembered this. I totally forgot about this. Uh, this famous scene from a 1992 film called Boomerang. Check this out. Okay, slow it down. Right, right there. Okay, what do you think? Well, I like it. Hold on. Is that a nipple? That's not a nipple, that's a shadow. That's a nipple. Excuse me, that's a shadow. I think it's a shadow of a nipple. Come on, stop playing. That's a nipple. That's a shadow. I'll blow it up. It's a nipple. Because I'm drooling. Yes, yes. Power to the people. If I got the power, you got the power. We got the power. That's power to the people. And right now, the power is right here. And you're listening to my man DJ Rome on the Psychotic Bump School, the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. I got a story that must be heard about a little girl who wishing was a bird. She was unhappy living in a ghetto cage, but it gave her hope when her sweet grandma was saved. Yeah. 
in all of his cinematic candor, Scott. That was Melvin Van Peoples from the 1992 film Boomerang. He does it all in front of and behind the camera. Uh, Scott, I'm going to give you a chance to comment on that, but can you talk about the music and the fact that he infused music into cinema in a way that really captured our attentions and really brought us to the attention of uh, Earth, Wind & Fire? Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, interestingly, well, you know, as a, a as a recording entity, he uh, took on the name Brer Soul, and, uh, ah. and he was doing a, a form of, of music that had a uh, certain name, uh, form of songwriting where the lyrics were spoken over the music, style carried over to his debut album, Brer Soul. You know, so he kind of debuted his Brer Soul incarnation in movie and everybody uh most people remember the song come on feet from that movie so like i said uh, he doesn't speak very much dialogue mm -hmm. if any at all in feedback right. but uh his voice is is definitely there in the soundtrack and in music and um you know in the band for the sweet sweet uh back sweet sweet back's badass song yes. was a very very early incarnation of earth wind and fire and um, I have to say, for the longest time, I thought that that score was done somewhere in between the first and second albums that Earth, Wind & Fire did for Warner Brothers. But I had the occasion to interview a bass player of Earth, Wind & Fire and, and currently the only true original original mm -hmm. member of Earth, Wind & Fire that's still in the group, Birdie White. Come on. And uh, he told me that when his brother Maurice White flew him out from Chicago to L.A., that the very first recording session that he did was the Sweetback music. And, mm. you know, um, and the reason that it, it wasn't so clear is because, you know, when that album was released uh, as a joint venture of um, Melvin's Yeah, Inc. and Stax Records, they didn't put a date on it. They, they didn't put the year that it was done. So uh, it was easy to kind of get confused. It's like, you know, you would assume that, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire's first album would be their, their own first album. But the first mm -hmm. thing they did was the music for Weedback. And um, wow. the theme, the instrumental theme song is also very, very uh, popular amongst those who collect and, and study uh, Black, the music of Black movie soundtrack. You know, it's a, like a jazzy, grooving funky kind of instrumental tune with a little Latin thing to it. Yeah. And um, yeah, you know, uh, so it was very important. You know, so it wasn't like when, when Melvin Van Peebles was using music and Sweetback, it wasn't just as, you know, kind of background music and theme music. Whenever he appeared vocally on that soundtrack, you know, he was kind of the inner voice for his character on the screen who did not speak dialogue. Mm. Wow, brilliant. Brilliant. I mean, I don't know to what extent that that had been done prior to that, but it's certainly for our culture. I mean, it certainly would get our attention because music uh, in movies, as you know, has become, you know, really an intrinsic element to the cinematic experience. And so when you get some musicians of the caliber of a burgeoning Earth, Wind and Fire coming out of Chess Records, no doubt, way back then. Right. So, well, no, they were here in L.A. I mean, Maurice had worked at Chess Records, but all the music, mm -hmm. so half of the musicians that he had in the band were from Chicago, and the other half of them were L.A. guys like Leslie Drayton, great trumpet player. Yeah. The guitar player whose name is escaping me right now. Um, so, so you're not talking about Al McKay? 
No, 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 no. The original guitar player, and and I want to uh, give him oh, his props. So I'm gonna look this up. Oh, I man, want to say yeah. his name because he's he's he was a really great cat. And he just kind of disappeared. I heard that he became a dentist, but oh, uh, had wow. he stayed in music, I mean, you know, he was like a a black rocker. He played a really aggressive uh, hmm. uh, guitar. You know, um, Michael Beal is his name. Nice. Uh, you know, it's not even a picture. You know, <laughs> no individual picture of him here in. Um, in uh in on the discogs website wow uh, he but he is on the poster there was a poster insert inside of the very first earth wind and fire album and that's probably one of the clear pictures you'll ever see of that group oh nice and well, then of course I mean, jerry scott was the female vocalist i think he brought her from chicago too as verdine and um wade flemings and a couple other cats and like i said there were some other he he fleshed out the band with people in la of course he came mm -hmm. here because where the where some most of the record companies were and they got that deal on warner brothers that didn't work out very well for them warner brothers really had no black music department um so you know earth wind and fire's first album you know first album that's all your brilliant stuff and then the second mm -hmm. record you know it really suffered it, it i've never really liked this one of my least favorite earth wind and fire albums called the need of love mm -hmm. uh, it seemed kind of rushed and whatever except Gary Scott's beautiful song is on there. I think about loving you. That's about the most, that's the best thing that album, just in my humble opinion. But the first mm -hmm. album is brilliant. And, uh, but even before both of those was the score for Sweetback. And I'm sure that was a big deal for Maurice to move from working with Ramsey Lewis and traveling the world and right. creating that vision in his mind about a band that he wanted to have that was theatrical and, Mm -hmm. and used a whole lot of different music together. You know, Maurice had that vision from his travels with Ramsey. And uh, and for his first thing to be a film score, I'm pretty sure that, you know, he was very, um, you know, very proud uh, of that association, especially Black independent. Well, absolutely. Well, you can probably break this down for us too. Uh, the Watermelon Man, right? Yeah. So any association, because before we were recording, we were talking about uh, the great legendary uh, keyboardist Herbie Hancock. Mm -hmm. So is there any connection between the cinematic movie Watermelon Man and Herbie Hancock's uh, iconic tune? I don't think so. Uh, I, I believe that the Watermelon Man, first of all, that song was. Uh, what's that one? Yeah, he did. Yeah, Herbie wrote that, uh, and um, Mongo Santa Maria had yes. a very big hit with it. Right. Uh, I was thinking about Afro Blue. That's Mongo's tune, but Watermelon okay. covered by Mongo, and he and he had the big hit record with it, and and Herbie has the jazz classic with it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was done in the early '60s, and uh, Watermelon Man, the movie, was done later. It, it might have been a reference to what a watermelon man is, but musically, I don't believe that there was a crossover. I'm trying to look up right now. It's okay. been so long since I've seen Watermelon Man. I mean, it was the movie. It was, uh, you know, very, it was humorous. And, and um, you know, for folks that don't know, it's about a, a this racist white guy who wakes up one day and all of a sudden he's black and he has to deal with, uh, you know, uh, losing his friends and his, job and his identity and everything uh so it's kind of like a, a twilight zone episode with comedic elements in a full you know 
full 90 minutes to t try to tell that story. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, again, uh, another effortless, seamless uh, segue. Uh, we're going to miss Melvin Van Peebles. Um, Herbie Hancock, um, A. Scott Galloway. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I had to ask you about that because sitting in my stepfather's Cadillac as a child and hearing the introduction to the Watermelon Man song, uh, those interesting falsetto voices and the percussive nature of the way the, the, the rhythm just kind of percolates through the song and it has this long, slow buildup. And just to think that that guy that was on that track is in um, LA this weekend performing at the Hollywood Bowl. And I believe he's, you know, just, you know, he's on tour recently, but, you know, he comes to mind, Scott, because I found out through um, a sister I interviewed not too long ago, Carmen Rogers, she was talking about the fact that when uh, the verses came out, okay, so we can, we can shout out Earth, Wind & Fire and the Isley Brothers for their verses competition uh, recently, yep. but D'Angelo uh, did a verses on his own. It was just called D'Angelo and Friends. And I was a little disappointed in it because he didn't have his band. And I asked Carmen about that. Well, I, I was just expressing my disappointment to her. I said, man, I really wish he had a band because he, he's had some talented cats play in his group, including oh, yeah. Jesse Johnson that we were just talking about, Pino Palladino. I was like, if he brings all those cats out on the verses, it's going to be a wrap. Yeah. And, and she said, I said, man, I wish they had been there. She said, oh. No, they, they, no, he was he did that in New York. His, his band is in L.A. I was like, L.A., what they doing in L.A.? He said, oh, well, that's where they all moved to Glasper and all them. Most of them spend most of their time in L.A. because Herbie is somebody that helped them get their music into films. They're doing a lot of score and soundtracks in L.A. Mm. now for people like Terrace Martin and Glasper and all them. I was like, oh, snap, that would explain it. So. So again, I mean, I don't even know why I bring that up, but it just goes back to the point and harkens back to the fact that the the marriage of music and movies and cinema, soundtrack, scoring, uh, that's something that Melvin also shared a vision for. He knew that it had a very, very important uh, aspect to the theatrical, dramatic feel of the movies, emphasizing the, the certain uh, crescendos and scenes. And uh, you you just never watch films the same way. I mean, just just imagine taking the music out of all that, Scott, and mm -hmm. then just watching and just having a, a on screen experience. You know what I'm saying? What are your thoughts about that? Oh yeah, music has has been enhancing film since the beginning. And to have live organ accompaniment, you know, or oh, wow. or or full on orchestral accompaniment, you know, before they were able to wed sound to film, they mm -hmm. had live musicians. You know, usually it's just an organ an organist but you know i think some of the grander aspects there there were even you know bands and whatnot and then later uh like many decades later there were presentations of of movies like fritz lang's metropolis with you know a full or orchestra you know playing mm. stuff. you can go to the hollywood bowl several times in in the summer and they're presenting things like putting the film on the screen and having the orchestra play to put, play particular portions uh, from the film. That just happened this summer at the bowl. They did Panther. They did the score to Panther. And um, uh, Jeff Bova, who's one of my Facebook friends, he's a great keyboardist synthesizer guy. He posted like about two minutes of it and I had chills, you know, because they had mm. all this African percussion with symphony orchestra you know if you remember any of the music 
from the movie Panther. I mean, it's seriously dynamic, you know, mm-hmm. symphonic African influenced music. And that audience was on, um, you know, on its feet, you know, because it's so powerful. Mm. Even speaking to Herbie, you know, I mean, Herbie's been doing, you know, uh, movie music for, for a long time. And, and one of the very first things that he did, I mean, one of his first classic pieces of music, Maiden Voyage, was originally yeah. written for a commercial. I think it was a, commo- a commercial for a, a cologne or something. Mm. And uh, and then you know he and then you know it, he made it into a full song, um, and then you know he wow. he went on to do the music for a movie called Blow Up, mm. uh, and then he did Spook Who Sat by the Door, ah, um, and later he did the music for the Richard Pryor, uh, my biography film. Uh, Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling. Uh-huh. And, uh, and of course, I think my favorite score is, though, is the score for Round Midnight, which starred Dexter Gordon. Ooh, I did Everybody. see that one. Oh, yeah. man, that was such a great movie. Horace Whitaker, uh, right? Uh, no, not, no, Dexter no, no, Gordon. No. Dexter. Oh, yeah, yeah, Horace Whitaker played Bird. Yes. Bird. Yeah. I wasn't as much of a fan of that film. Right. But Round Midnight, Bertrand right. um, yes. Tavernier was the director. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's such a snapshot of 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 uh, the music, you know, in the '40s and '50s, and and how it affected people overseas. And mm-hmm. uh, in the movie, you have you know Tony Williams and Bobby Hutcherson and and wow. Herbie, and you know just and and you know just playing musician, jumping himself mm-hmm. in a way that uh, I always loved Bobby Hutcherson in that movie because he was he was cooking some gumbo or something, and they didn't have okra wherever they were, and he said. Yeah, you know, this is, you know, it needs okra. Oh, it's all right, you know, but it needs some okra. I I don't know. I just remember that. But, oh, man, you know, there there is no way. I mean, you know, there's certain movies that that go out of their way to not have any score because sometimes Mm -hmm. there's another argument where they feel like, you know, music tips the the hand or it gives things away or it just makes things very obvious or you're making the audience feel a certain way about what's on the screen by putting certain types of music under it. So there are some really hardcore filmmakers that are like, no music, you know, it's going to be the actors and the dialogue and the lighting and the cinematography and all that stuff, all visual arts. And we're not going to, you know, um, you know, yeah, it's no the word I'm looking for. But yeah, it's like, you know, mm-hmm. you're like manipulating the audience when you throw certain kinds of music under there, they're not even thinking about it. But right. you know, that music immediately makes them feel something that the right. film makes you to feel from the film. Yeah. And there are some people that that just are in complete defiance of that and say, no, mm-hmm. we're not. Wow. Well, I tell you, it was uh, the ultimate cinematic masterstroke brought to us by the late, great Melvin Van Peebles. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're uh, chatting with uh, the good brother, Mr. A. Scott Galloway. He's helping us breaking down still yet another great that has made his transition. Melvin Van Peebles, may you rest in paradise and may you always continue to be our ancestor watching over uh, all of our creative endeavors from this point forward. Shout out to uh, Mario, his son and family. You know what I'm saying? So uh, uh, we got a couple of minutes, Scott. Uh, you got Shout out to Reggie Hudlund too. I mean, you know, you, you that oh, clip yes. that you played was from Boomerang. Yeah, that is one of my all-time favorite black films, because, mostly because of the casting. And so, you know, for him, I mean, he reached out and got some of everybody. If anybody out there hasn't seen the movie, I mean, everybody from Grace Jones to Eartha Kitt, 
Oh my to, god. Um my man. Oh man, who's my dude? He he uh he did the kinky commercial and uh, 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 well, what could go wrong? Uh, you uh, may not have complete autonomy. <laughs> that got, what, oh my goodness. What was his name? Jeffrey Jeffrey Holder. Yes, yes, yes. Jeffrey Holder, Jeffrey Oh my Holder. god. He was yes. my favorite in the in the whole thing. But yeah, he you know the the Hudling brothers cast so many different people in there, and so that was definitely a tip of the hat. Oh man, by having was, Melvin what... Van Peebles in the in their film was an acknowledgement of, of Scott. him and his role in Black Sabbath. Scott, we also in that one. You're making me think. Bang, 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 bang. John Witherspoon. <laughs> oh my God! All yeah. in that one movie. Are you coordinate? Yeah. You got to coordinate. Coordinate, wow. Man. Mushroom wow. bell. Bam. Ooh, bam. <laughs> I mean, you see, I mean, I love it, man. I mean, wow. I mean, and I'm going to have to say anything. You just say, I, mean, I was talking about talking about that with some friends of mine yesterday. I got together with some friends of mine from college. And uh, uh, I and my all of us had ordered, it was a Southern food restaurant, and we all ordered Southern dishes, except for one of my friends, my friend Lyle. He ordered like a hamburger, but it had Cajun fries. So every time, mm. you know, I mean, we're all sitting here with like, I had Jambalaya and my, my friend Paul had um, fried chicken and stuff. And his wife, who who is, uh, she's Asian, but she's mm. a Mexican background. She had like greens and hot link and stuff. And my boy over here, Lyle, got the, the hamburger with the Cajun fries. So I just look over to him and go, you go get your buggy, get your buggy. And, and you know, and everybody automatically knew what that was. We started busting up. You know? Wow! I love how cultural references—it's like a shorthand that mm -hmm. you know we don't have to explain nothing. It's like right, you know. So yeah, you just say mushroom bell, coordinate, bang bang. Say like we, we yep. know exactly what no, that is. <laughs> man, man, I'm telling you, man, just just jewels all the way around. And speaking of jewels, uh, believe it or not, uh, that movie way back in 1992 was uh, right around the time a group of us went out. I think. And uh, we saw that movie, and uh, I saw that movie with Juliana, a frequent contributor to this show, Juliana right Bowden, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, it's like that's I think that's when she first came to L.A. when I was living in L.A. So yeah, Boomerang brings back a lot of memories, man. Melvin Van Peebles making his mark even two decades later at that. Oh point. well, please. And I mean, and, and at that point, you know, we got to talk about Panther because you know, oh, yeah, that was like the Renaissance Spike Lee, like we like we talked about earlier. You know, black exploitation. You know, mm -hmm. it became this whole thing and then ended up dying out because, you know, black folks got tired of seeing the same shit and same right. over right. and over again, whatever. And, I, and again, there were so many we we in that short period of time covered a lot of ground. You know, we had black we had horror films. We had poignant dramas. We had Aaron Loves Angela. We had mm. a lot of things, you know, and then we had nothing for several right. years. And yeah, Spike Lee comes along and gives us "She's Got to Have It," right? Which created a whole nother renaissance in in independent black yes. cinema, and where we got a couple more uh, really good movies, sidewalk stories, which a lot of people forget about, mm -hmm. and uh, and there was another one. There was uh, Charles Burnett, Killer of Sheep, which just screened at the New Beverly. Hey Center. man, I remember a film called Chameleon Street. Yeah, uh, brother. Yep. Yeah, it was crazy, and uh, yeah. And, and uh, the brother from another planet. Yes, Robert Denver? Townsend, or was that uh, Damon Wayans? Or no? Was oh, that was Denzel. Was that Denzel? No, it, I don't think anybody major was in that picture. It, um, oh wow! It was another independent kind of picture that which led you know you know those independent pictures again Hollywood. Oh, okay, black folks want it. You know they're ready to come back to the movies again, 
and then we were getting all that stuff jason's lyric and love and ah, basketball and yes. and all that and in the middle of all that mario came with uh posse which was yep. the black western but, he, but most importantly he came with panther which um wow about the black black, black panthers and it, it had a a theme song where all these different musicians came together oh, on it. it. Uh, but Mario and Melvin did Panther together. You know, they, they, so, you know, it's beautiful, man, to think about the father-son dynamic. And, right. and, and they were making a, a film that was about, uh, you know, a, a serious aspect of our civil rights culture, our, our black power culture. And, um, you know, so Melvin was right there. And, and so for him to be wow. in, have that little comedy role in Boomerang, uh, but mm. the bigger thing he did at that time uh, in a mainstream context with Panther. Oh, wow. Man, well, thank you for bringing that to us, to our attention, man. It's like these, these little known uh, tidbits are so important, but just further cements the fact that uh, he was a legend, man. Uh, Scott, I can't thank you enough for being here, good brother. What's the best way for people to follow you these days and keep up with your work, upcoming work and projects? What can you tell us, good brother? I'm very proud to just share with people that I wrote the liner note essay for a six CD anthology on Ray Charles called True Genius. It Ooh. just came out at the end of the month celebrating Ray Charles's. Uh, it was it, it was supposed to be his 90th birthday, which was last year. But, you know, mm -hmm. all I have to say is COVID. So it didn't right. come out till this year. Uh, but it was just his 91st birthday, which just passed. It's wow. a beautiful thing. I'm very happy to be involved in. And I also very recently, I did the liner note essay for a brand new album by the great jazz saxophonist, Kenny Garrett. The album is called Sound mm -hmm. from the Ancestors. And nice. it's put out by Mac Avenue Records. So, I mean, I've done a bunch of other things, but those two are the ones that I really want people to know about. You know, and then I did a short thing uh, for the Spinners' new records, their first record in over two decades. Oh wow! It's called "Around Around the Block and Back Again." What? It, it's on Peak Records. I did the the liner notes for Mary Clayton's first album in, oh, in many years, and particularly after her uh, car accident that left her paralyzed. Um, oh my God! Really? Yeah. Oh sweet. yeah. I mean, quadriplegic or what? I, ho I hope not. Oh, she lost both her legs. What? Oh, Mary Clayton? Yes, the great Mary Clayton. Oh, my Some God. Of you may remember from another film that won an Oscar is a documentary called 20 Feet from Stardom. Absolutely. Absolutely. Her album and is entitled Beautiful Scars, and it's a, it's incredible. So I definitely you know tell people all those projects I worked on were exceptional musically i mean just really great records this has been a really good year for me oh man associated with stuff and the last one i'll mention is oh and i did one for a brother named uh elijah rock matters of the heart mm -hmm. las vegas singer tap dancer songwriter mm -hmm. podcaster and uh, and then my brother will keith did a, a really good album called um uh b-side um global b i'm i'm sorry I haven't gotten my copy of that one yet. He sent me the CDs, but I haven't gotten my vinyl yet. Mm. Oh, that's the other thing. The Kenny Garrett is available on double vinyl. And the packaging is beautiful. The art was done by a guy named Rudy Gutierrez. And so he and I just instantly bonded. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of his work and he loves my work. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's great when all the different people you work with are uh, of a certain caliber and you just, you know. Hey, man. You know, 
Iron. And connected to a work as powerful as Kenny sounds from the ancestors. Right. There is black jazz. So yeah. please go out and get all of those, my people. Oh. Absolutely. Not for me, but for, for the whole everything. They're all great, great. Hey, man. If people don't know by now, A. Scott Galloway is for the culture. I mean, he, you, you do this for the underdogs. And it, it, this just further solidifies that very point. Well, A. Scott Galloway, you know you're always welcome here. Uh, will you join us again sometime on Psychotic Bump School, good brother? And, you know, oh, just about every time you call on me, I am here. And I appreciate you uh, always appreciating my input, what I have to say. And, and, and I hope that the audience does, too. You know, you might, you might go to your, your email box at some point and be like, man, could you stop having that brother on there? We're sick again. Get somebody else. <laughs> man, please. This is always, it's always a joy. It's always so informative. And uh, you do nothing but just bring the light, the joy, and the love. Thank you, Mr. A. Scott Galloway. Well, that's our show, y'all. Psychotic Bump School is the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. My name is DJ Rome, and you know we're here every Monday evening from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific time. Check back with us. We shall return next week. Also want to thank our very special guest for the evening, A. Scott Galloway. I also want to send a very, very special shout out to Mr. Frank Starks, who is the Iron Man behind the board. And we're out of here, y'all. Take care.